Would you all pray with me? Father God, we thank you that we can come before you, that we can be in your presence because of our Savior, Jesus. Father, I pray that today we would see Jesus and we would see him so clearly. And we all have stuff and we're all in different places, both both mentally uh, and spiritually, but also physically right now. So would you come and speak whatever it is that each of our hearts most need to hear in this moment today? Would you, by your Spirit, speak the words that our hearts are longing to hear, that our hearts need to hear to be able to face whatever this week holds? Father, I think it's crazy that you continually let me do this work. I surrender myself to you. I surrender my heart and my words, the things I've thought about and studied and prepared. I give it all to you to be used however you so choose. But please, Father, by your Spirit, come and speak to us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my five-year-old, Pren, has warts. And it's a thing in our family. A lot of our kids have had warts at some point, and they get it from me. I'm the one to blame. In high school, I used to have a wart that was right above my knee that was the size of a quarter, so we, we named him Bill. Uh, but my kids, as they uh, usually about the time they turn five, about the time they enter kindergarten, they develop warts. Our son Atticus got some warts on his hand uh, when he was five, and I remember uh, he, would go to, he would go to kindergarten, and there would be this girl that would sit next to him in circle time, and she would never look down at his hand that was covered in warts. She would just ever so slightly move her hand over on top of his and start rubbing his warts, never looking at him or his hand. Now, Atticus never said anything, but he would come home and tell Kelly and me, there's this girl who keeps playing with my warts during circle time. Well, Prynne, five, entering kindergarten, has developed so many warts on her knee. And because me and Kelly know that kids can be mean and insensitive, they can make fun of things that that are different, uh, we started putting Band-Aids on her knees before she went to school. But the other day, we were calling her to come out that, that it was time to get, to get ready for school and that we needed to put the Band-Aids over her knee. And she called back, don't worry about it. I don't need any Band-Aids. I'm beautiful in my own special way. Y'all, my five-year-old is doing so well during this season. I mean, some might even say she's thriving. But me, I recently purchased a gallon-sized water bottle with words of affirmation on it. Words like, you're doing so good. Keep up the good work. You're so swell. See? During this season of social distancing and no mass gatherings, I had to purchase a water bottle to give me words of affirmation. So how are you doing? What's this season look like for you? Back in March, when we first moved everything online, in that very first sermon, I asked you, what has this pandemic been exposing in you? 
And I asked that question thinking that we'd be back together by Easter. So now six months later, what has this pandemic been exposing in you? Back in March, I talked about how I was struggling with anxiety really for the first time in my life. But now six months later, as I think about kind of where I've been and what this experience has been like for me, I realize how, how easily I can be consumed by cares and worries and pleasures of this world. I've seen how much my joy, my experience of joy is wrapped up in fun, people-packed experiences. I've realized how easily I can become bummed. Most days, I'm pretty bummed out. So what has this pandemic exposed in you? What has it revealed to you? But here's the thing with me. This is what I think God has been saying to me again and again and again, or maybe a better way to put it, uh, God has been inviting me to again and again and again, to fix my eyes on him. When, uh, when the anxiety ramps up, when I'm all riled up about some political thing that's happening or, um, or the way some of the loudest Christians are responding to something, or when I'm just sad because Sundays aren't what they used to be, when the sadness feels so thick, the invitation again and again and again, and Jesus has been so faithful and so consistent with me, has been, look at me. Fix your eyes on me because the minute you look away, it's going to get bad real quick. I know this is hard for you. I know you're struggling. Look at me. So, what has this pandemic and everything that is happening this year exposed in you? In me, it's exposed how desperately I need to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what I have been learning. So what have you been fixing your eyes on lately? There's a place in the Gospel of John where some Greeks are going to the temple to worship. And the Greeks were outsiders. They were, they were looked down upon by God's chosen people. And in fact, uh, whenever they showed up on the scene, the religious leaders of the day would treat them as outsiders. But these Greeks went and they found the disciple Philip and they asked, they had one request. They said, sir, we would like to see Jesus. That's John 12, 21. That's become my COVID prayer, my mantra of 2020. And really, it should be my daily prayer in all seasons, in all circumstances. I want to see Jesus. So that's what I pray on the days that I can muster the hope to pray. Because, you know, sometimes it's just hard. Some days are really hard. And that's why I'm so thankful for Romans 8, 26, which says when you and I, when we don't know how to pray or we don't even know what we should be praying for, or, or sometimes we can't even form intelligible words. 
the scripture tells us that the Spirit of God is praying for us, that he's interceding on our behalf. And y'all, the best part about that is if the Spirit of God is praying, he's praying for what you and I would be praying if we knew everything that God knows. So on the days when I can muster the hope to pray, I pray I want to see Jesus. One of the ways I've been seeking to see Jesus is, is through reading, reading the Bible and looking for him. I started with the Gospel of John, which Gary Abbott recommended we all do back in April. Um, and even as I was reading John again, I've read John so many times, I, I can't help but be astounded every time by the way Jesus loves people, that he loves people right where they're at. He, like, he, he loves them uh, just as they are, not as they should be. And, and every time I read the Gospel of John, I'm reminded again about it, and it always is shocking to me. Um, Albert Einstein, in an interview, was asked what he thought about Jesus. And he said um, that as a child, he received instruction in both the Bible and the Talmud, uh, that, he was an, that he was a Jew, but that he was enthralled, he said, by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. And then he went on to say, Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. He said, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates every word. So I spent some time reading John. And I experienced that. I experienced the personality of Jesus coming out. And then I decided I was going to go to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis. And I was going to read Genesis intentionally looking for Jesus. I wanted to see any place where Jesus was foreshadowed or where the promise of Jesus was mentioned. Or, you know, sometimes even in Genesis, Jesus appears in a pre-incarnate form. Y'all, if you read Genesis looking for Jesus, you will find him all over the place. Um, and if you want the work to be a little bit easier, just read the Jesus Storybook Bible. It does the work for you. But just recently, the last couple of weeks, I've spent time studying Revelation because 2020, right? And again, I'm blown away by Jesus. In Revelation, we see Jesus as he is as he's always been, as he is, as he will always be in all his glory. And just FYI, if you're wondering what Revelation is really all about, what it's actually saying, it's really just a bunch of crazy images that say again and again and again in many different ways, Jesus wins. Trust him. Choose him. Fix your eyes on Jesus, not on a pandemic, not on the government, not on finances, not on suffering, not on a flag, not even on your own sin, but fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the message of Revelation. In fact, it's the, the message of the entire Bible. So for such a time as this, and really for all times, we are to fix our eyes on him. And so today, that's what I want to do. And I hope I can help us fix our eyes on Jesus by looking at Jesus as he's presented in the very beginning of Revelation. So that's what I'm going to read. I'm going to read the, the first chapter of Revelation, part of the first chapter of Revelation, and then we'll talk about what we see, about who Jesus is. Um, 
And just some context, Revelation was written by the Apostle John. Uh, John is the one who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the letters of John. Um, John was probably only 16 when he started following Jesus. He was a part of his earthly ministry. We know that uh, the night that Jesus was betrayed, that John was resting his head on the chest of Jesus during the Last Supper. He was there at the cross. He was there at the empty tomb. Um, And that he's the only apostle the only original disciple of Jesus that actually made it to an old age. And so in his old age, probably when he was around 80, he gets this vision and he writes down this vision and that's the book of Revelation. So John, this man who has spent most of his life, 70, 80 years of his life following Jesus, gets this vision of Jesus and this is what he sees. This is Revelation 1 starting in the 12th verse. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is God's word. So when John comes face to face with Jesus, Jesus says to him, I am the first and the last. At the end of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, Jesus repeats that again by saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last. So the story of the Bible ends with, Je- with Jesus saying to all who would ever pick it up, to all who would read this book, I'm your beginning, I'm your end. If you find me, you can face anything. You can get better, you can know you are loved unconditionally, you can not only survive, but you can thrive in all circumstances, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of an election, in the midst of Chris Tomlin going country on us. Jesus says, if you find me, you can experience peace. You can be free. Jesus says, I am the first, I am the last, I am the beginning, I am the end, I am the alpha and the omega. I have a book uh, that was a that was given to me uh, by Kathy, who goes to the Lake Mary campus. And uh, it's one of uh, my favorite books now. In fact, one of the first things I do when I uh, come into the office is I pick it up and I read a chapter out of it. It's titled, A Hundred Portraits of Christ. And it's aptly named because it's a hundred chapters, each with a different description of an attribute of Christ. A um, hundred of them, right? Um, and I, I think she stole it from the library, uh, but I'm, I'm grateful because it's so helpful to me. Uh, but I, the very first chapter is Jesus is Alpha and Omega. And I just want to read you this one little part of it because it's so good. The writer says, there's another intriguing and inspiring dimension to this title. The alphabet represents absolute wholeness, completeness. 
It is an inexhaustible resource for all to tap. The same 26 letters used by Shakespeare to write immortal lines have been used by lovers to express their feelings, by judges to pass sentences, by presidents to issue proclamations, by a parent to guide a child. Jesus Christ is our Alpha and Omega is our resource and inspiration for the whole realm of life and communication. That's so good, right? It's amazing, right? Man, what if you and I, what if we actually lived that truth? How different would our interactions be? How different would our comments we post on Facebook be? How different would we respond to people who think and act and look differently than we do? So how do we actually live that truth? How do you and I, how do we make Jesus our first and our last? How do we make him our alpha and our omega? Well, let's first talk about what it means to make Jesus our first. When Jesus says, I am the first, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be our creator. Like the Gospel of John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All that was created was created through Him and by Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God which spoke into existence creation is Jesus Christ. God didn't create light. He spoke it. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. All that was created was created by the Word and through the Word, and the Word is Jesus Christ, which means He spoke you and I into creation. It means that Jesus is your first. It means for you and I, for us to understand who we are, to understand our purpose, to understand our story, to understand ourselves, we have to start with Him. One thing that this pandemic, I think, has exposed in all of us is how weak our starting points are. A lot of times we start with, um, with our skills, our talents, our heritage, our job, our, our, our beliefs. We like to start with kind of what is most true to me, what is, what is it that my heart most wants, what is it uh, for me to live out my truth, uh, for me to be truly who I am. And y'all, that's all, that's all good. I mean, it sounds good. But the problem is if you start with you, you'll never find you. Kipling, who wrote The Jungle Book, uh, once said, what do they know of England who only England know? What he was saying is, if you really want to understand your country, you got to step out of it. You've got to have an outside perspective to understand it. I once lived in the faraway land of L.A., California, and y'all, you know, I'm 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 from here. Uh, I'm I'm an Orlando boy, um, and uh, and I I never appreciated how easily one could get in and out of a Target, or how convenient it is to go to Chick Fil A until I lived in the faraway land of LA. Now, I know Chick-fil-A's are all over the place now in California, but they weren't when I lived there. In fact, there was only one Chick-fil-A in a mall in Torrance, which was about 30 miles down the 405, which meant two and a half hour drive in LA traffic. And y'all, every week, Kelly and I would get in the car, 
we would get some book on tape or CD, because that's what we listened to back then, and we would make that drive to get our chicken sandwiches and our Polynesian sauce. And we would always buy like 10 chicken sandwiches to bring back. Now, many of those sandwiches actually didn't make it back. They were eaten on the way back. But we bought 10 chicken sandwiches and we would take as much Polynesian sauce as they would let us take. I know my city, Orlando, now because I once lived in the faraway land of L.A., California. If you want to know you, you can't start with you. You can't just start with looking within. If you really want to know who you are, what you were built for, what it would look like to be truly free, Jesus says, you got to start with me. I'm the first. I'm the beginning. Do you believe that? Or do you just believe you're an accidental allocation of atoms? And however you answer that question will determine how you will face life, how you will move through this life. If you're just an accident, if, if some molecules just came together at some time in the infinite past and you're some kind of chemical accident, then of course you're going to start with you. You're going to start with whatever you think's best. You make up your own rules. You determine your own meaning. But if you, in fact, were created by a personal God, then you have to discover what he had in mind when he thought you up. And so how do you do that? Will you allow God's word to shape you, to speak to you? And it's not like I'm going to open up God's word. I'm going to see what I agree with, what parts I want to take. No, you, you open God's word and you allow it to read you. You allow it to be your starting place, the beginning, the first. Allow it to form you. Now, here's the thing. Even if you try to make your inner voice or your desires or your truth to be the starting place, something outside of you is still shaping you, is still discipling you. So have you been shaped, have you been discipled by the Word or by Tucker or Ingram or Maddow or, or Hannity or, or Cooper? Are you allowing the Word of God to shape you? My friend and counselor Sharon Hirsch says whenever she reads the Bible, whenever she opens up the Bible, she says to herself, if God doesn't lie, what does this mean? John writes in his first letter, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. There's no deceit. So if God doesn't lie, what does this mean? Are you allowing the word, are you allowing Jesus to shape you? Are you allowing him to be your starting place? Are you allowing him to be your first? So Jesus says, I'm the first, but he also says, I'm the last. When Jesus, the word spoke the universe into existence, it was all for him. Everything was oriented toward him. The Bible says all of human history is moving toward Christ. He's the omega. He's the ending point. He is the last. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That means if you and I, if you and I orient ourselves to Christ, in him every need we have will be answered, every promise, all of our needs point to him. All the problems in life will find their solution in him. All the evil and suffering will be put down by him. 
The Apostle Paul also says we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every one. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you have Christ, you have everything you need? It's not easy to believe. But it's what the Word tells us. There are two ways to approach God. You can either approach God, Jesus, as a means to the end or as the end. A lot of times when I, when I uh, am struggling, especially in my faith, it's because Jesus has become a means to the end, not the end in, in and of himself. Things start going wrong. Maybe I think, all right, Maybe if I get a little bit more religious, maybe if I try a little bit harder, maybe if I pray more or if I go to church or if I join this Bible study, maybe he'll turn things around for me. But don't you see how in that scenario, Jesus is the means to the end. He's not the end. The ultimate thing, the thing I'm looking for, the omega in my life is whatever I'm hoping he'll fix or whatever I'm hoping he won't take away from me, or, or whatever I'm hoping that, uh, that he will provide for me if I do these things. Jesus is the means, not the end. What is your omega point? What's the thing that you say, if I lose this, or if I don't achieve this, or um, if I fail at this, there's really no point. My life loses its meaning if I don't have this, if I don't achieve that. What is that for you? Now, this can be a place where we have blind spots. So maybe it's a good question to ask people who know you and love you. Like, what, what, what would they say is your omega point? What is the thing that you're striving after? What is the thing that is your ultimate? If you have kids, Take a lot of bravery, but you could also ask them, what do you think daddy's main goal in life is? What do you think is the most important thing to dad? What is, what is the thing that is ultimate to him? But what is it to you? What is your omega point? Is it a job that makes you feel purposeful? Is it a family? Is it a spouse? Is it, um, is it getting good grades or popularity or, or being really healthy? Don't you see how if, if your job is your omega point, if it is, if it is what is ultimate, um, if you lose it or if you fail, um, or maybe even, maybe you don't lose your job because of failure on your part or, your, uh, or an inability to do the work. Maybe it's out of your control. Maybe it's because of a pandemic or some economic collapse. But if, if your success and your worth is tied up in your job, when it's taken away from you, that's devastating, right? Or let's say it's your family. Say your, your omega point, your ultimate. You think the thing that God put you here on this earth to do is to be a great mother and to raise great children. That's a godly thing. We should, we should all strive to raise godly children and to be good parents. But if that is our ultimate thing, what happens when we have a prodigal? I know many of you parents have just dropped off your oldest to college. What happens if, if your oldest makes a lot of really bad choices? What if they make choices that they would never be allowed to make when they were living under your roof? You can be sad and disappointed in that, but if that's your omega point, 
if your ultimate was how your kids turned out or what a good parent you were, then you'll be devastated and mortified by those decisions. Or if it's popularity or acceptance by peers, or if it's making the football team, what if you get injured? Or, or if it's getting into that college, what if you get waitlisted? I remember I was so sure, there was never a doubt in my mind that I would not get into film school at FSU. And y'all, I didn't. And I got a rejection letter, and I've had many crises of faith in my life, uh, but that was a big one. That was a big one. I thought, God, after all that I've done for you, how could you not let me get into film school? He was a means to an end. The end, the ultimate, was getting into film school. This pandemic has exposed how weak most of our starting points are, but it's also exposed the devastating weakness of our ending points, of our omega points. I'm not sure uh, if the suicide rate has gone up during this time, um, but September is Suicide Awareness Month, and, and I want to I want to say a few things about that. Um, I want to say mental health cannot always be solved by a Bible verse or just believing in Jesus enough. And so if you're struggling, please, please don't deny yourself medical help simply because you think it's more spiritual not to. We've had two families in our church in just the last two months that have dealt with suicide. And both these men loved Jesus. Jesus loved them. They knew that Jesus loved them, and they still struggled with unhealthy omega points. I know it can get dark. I know that you can be struggling, and if that's you right now, if you're struggling right now, just make it to tomorrow. If you're struggling right now, call a friend who knows Jesus and just, just ask them to tell you stories about Jesus and seek medical help. Like Elf, smiling's my favorite. But I told you, most days I'm pretty bummed out during this season. And although I've never struggled with suicidal thoughts, I can tell you 2020 uh, has made me think about walking away a lot. Walking away from faith and from all this church stuff and just, it's just, I'm just like, ah, I'm just tired of it. But then like Peter, I say to Jesus, where would I go? You have the words of life. Don't you see, when we struggle with walking away, when we think we want to leave, it's because Jesus is a means and not the end. But if we stay, we hear Jesus say, I came for you. I died for you. I died so that you would never have to doubt my love for you. Serve me, follow me, not to get anything, but just to get me, just to be near me. I gave up everything for you so that you could have me for all eternity, so that you would never have to face anything alone. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a novel titled No Graven Image, and it's a novel about a woman who goes to South America uh, into the jungle to do Bible translations. And everything goes wrong. And in fact, nothing works out. And in the end, everything she's done hasn't mattered. Her life's work is ruined. 
And on the last page, the author writes, God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. If God was simply a means to an end, he had failed. But if God, if he was the end, then he had freed her. Are you free? Do you believe you can spend your whole life serving God and if all you get in the end is him, it's enough? We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you know that kind of freedom? Do you know the freedom that can only come when our omega point is Jesus? Okay, last thing. If Jesus is the beginning and the end, if he's the first and the last, if he's the alpha and the omega, it really is all about grace. In Revelation, you've got Jesus appearing as he's always been, as he is, as he will always be, in all his glory, and he's terrifying, right? He's got this face that's so bright, it's like the sun, he's got eyes that are blazing fire. He's got a mouth that when it opens, it's a double-edged sword coming out. I mean, it's terrifying stuff, right? And, and what does John do? John, this disciple who refers to himself in the gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved, John falls down on his face as though he were dead. He's, ter- he's scared to death, right? And John, as he's laying there, hears Jesus say to him, you don't have to be afraid. Don't be afraid. But John should be afraid. He's sinful like the rest of us. He hasn't measured up. He hasn't been perfect. He's a sinner in the presence of a holy and just God. But this holy and just God is grace. Jesus is grace. Grace is synonymous with Jesus. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Jesus is the grace of God. When Jesus says to John, you don't have to be afraid, he means it. He paid a price to speak those words. When Jesus says, you don't have to fear, it is backed by his blood that was spilt on a cross. Those words cost Jesus dearly, but they are a free gift to John, and John knew it. Because John was there. He was there in the garden when he saw Jesus bravely face the guards as he was arrested. He was there when Jesus stood trial and, and suffered injustice like no one else has ever experienced injustice. He was there as Jesus was beaten and bruised and bullied and shamed and mocked. He was there when a crown of thorns was placed on his head and he was there at the cross when he heard Jesus cry out to heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was there as the wrath of God was being poured out. And he was also there to hear Jesus say, forgive them. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and who is set down at the right hand of the throne of God.
You know what it says right after that? Hebrews 12, verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we see him as our first and our last, as we believe who he is and was and will always be, we will have whatever we need to face whatever is in front of us. We will have whatever we need to be about the work of God. We will have whatever we need not only to make it to tomorrow, but have hope for tomorrow. But don't miss this. Don't miss the fact that the Word of God, that Jesus knew we would grow weary. He knew we would lose heart. Otherwise, He wouldn't have said so. He knows. And he keeps inviting us back. He keeps whispering, look at me. Fix your eyes on me. I love you. You are beautiful, warts and all, in your own special way. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that Jesus shows us your heart most fully, fully. That in Jesus we see uh, our beginning and our, and our ending point. We see uh, hope and beauty and love, unconditional love, and, and most of all we see grace. Jesus, you are grace to us. All of us need grace as we move uh, through this pandemic, as we move through this election season, as we move through relationships with our parents and our kids and our best friends and our roommates and our teachers. And, and we just need so much grace. So Jesus, help us make you the Alpha and the Omega. Help us see you as you really are. Help us live in the freedom that can only come, Jesus, when you are everything. Invite us daily, remind us daily to fix our eyes on you. And thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to be the joy that gave you what you needed to face the cross. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.